Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from TSPN, that's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today is Friday, April the 13th. Friday the 13th. Remember that? But the real story of Friday the 13th is much more sinister in reality because it really happened. I'm not going to go into it today or anything, but if you go to the show notes today, you'll see me mention that in the very first line of the show notes. You'll see, watch out for black cats, ladders, and spilled salt today, folks. It's Friday the 13th. Of course, the real story is far more sinister. And if you don't happen to know the real story behind Friday the 13th, click on the link where it says far more sinister. And you'll find out. That's a little gem in the uh, the introduction segment today. But the reality is it is Friday, Friday, Friday. And 13th be damned, I don't care. Friday is Friday. I am heading back down to our place in Texas to see our kid, hang out with the family, all that jazz like I do often. And I'm excited about that. But I had to get in here, get this show done, get it ready for you. I already got a show for you guys Monday. Joe Nobody's going to be on Monday. Joe Nobody. You might think, he's nobody. No, the guy is cool. And he's going to tell you all kinds of things about fortifying your bug out location. And then we'll come back on Tuesday and do the typical uh, listener feedback show by email on Tuesday. So there's your next couple days. If you want to be on a show like today, how do you get on a show like today? Well, it's real easy. You pick your phone up. If you're using a cell phone, you make sure you have a good signal. Wherever you're calling from, you go find a quiet place. You know what you're going to say before you call. You get your call in in two minutes or less. You speak clear. You articulate what you want. You ask your question first. You give your details second. And the number you call to do that is 866-65-THINK. If you do that, there's about a 50-50 shot with the volume of calls that come in. Within the next two to three weeks, you'll hear yourself on the air. 50-50 odds are pretty good. If the lottery had 50-50 odds, I'd buy two tickets every week. Think about that. But it doesn't, but you do have about 50-50 odds, maybe 40%. Let me tell you what though, if you call and you go like, hi Jack, and I hear in the background, Somebody's running a table saw or something. You're not getting on the air. Don't do that. Anyway, that's all taken care of. But again, the number to call, 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. Leave your message, and I'll try to get you on the air in the future. All right. Before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. Now, look, it's no secret the price of food is going through the roof. If you doubt it, you know why? It's because you make good money, you have a good job, and this recession hasn't kicked you in the ass yet, and you probably are part of a household with at least two parents in it, and probably both of you work, right? If you don't know food, or, or you're growing the hell out of your food. If you're doing that already, I don't know. You could probably do better, but maybe you don't need Marjorie's product. I don't know. But if you want to know what's happened to the price of food and where it's heading in the future, go find yourself a single mom with two kids, that has a job, that's making money, that's making at least the same money she was making two years ago, and ask her if it's harder to put food on the table. She'll probably laugh at you, maybe cry, maybe slap you, because it's a stupid question to her, because of course the price of food's gone up. It's gone up a lot. 
And it, we can only expect more of that in the future. And one of the ways to combat that is to turn your backyard into a food production machine. Now, if you get over to BackyardFoodProduction.com and you get Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm, you'll learn exactly how to do that and put not just lower cost, but higher quality, better quality food into your body and make yourself more healthy at the same time you're saving yourself money. That's what backyard food production is really all about. I believe all of America is one day going to have to practice producing food in their backyard. I say that we get ahead of the curve. We start doing it now. Marjorie's DVD is one great way to do that. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, whenever I talk about our ammo sponsor, I say without ammo, your gun's useless. Well, without a competent operator, a gun's not really very useful either. When Joe Nobody comes on Monday, you're going to have a lot to think about from a standpoint of defense and what really provides defense. You know, a grandpa's old uh, sawn-off shotgun that you hid from the BATF that's under the bed somewhere that's rusty and, and uses one shell may not be sufficient for the task at hand. But no matter what you have, I'd rather have a trained operator with that piece of crap old rusted up single shot shotgun than somebody that doesn't know what they're doing with a, with a Star Trek looking AR. You gotta have training. What happens in a, in a tense situation is you don't fall back to your highest level of ability. You generally fall back to your highest level of training. So training is key. So get with Frank Sharp Jr. at Fortress Defense Consultants. And if you can't get to his location, remember, he can come to yours. Big announcement about Frank. Although he didn't call in his answer, so that I'm going to push that call that I had for him till next week. I realized that I needed to keep expanding this expert council. And we're not going to hear from any of them today. I had two, neither one of them returned the call. Of course, it's my fault because I waited until Thursday to screen your call, so don't blame them. But I'm adding Frank Sharp Jr. for questions on defense, firearms, and things like that to the expert council. Please note, if you have a question for the expert council, the way to do that is not by email. It's on a show like this. This is tailor-made for the expert council. And if you send me a question for Paul Wheaton or Tim Glantz or now Frank Sharp or Chef Keith Snow or something like that, if you call a question in like that, immediately after you call that call in. Send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Tell me the number you called from and, and, and who the question was for. And I'll be able to pluck that question out and give it priority because I want to get two or three questions for the council in every week with a show like this. I think it really brings a lot to the table. That will help me do it. Sending me an email saying, this is a question for Stephen Harris. Not going to happen. Doesn't work that way. Uh, there's too much email and it's too much complication. This plugs in perfectly. Call your questions in for the expert council. All right, before we go ahead and get to those calls, let's go ahead and finish up the housekeeping. Uh, first of all, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you join the MSB, you get exclusive uh, content available only to members, like $150 worth of free ebooks on day one, discounts to over 32 supporting vendors. And right now there's a sale on. I'm down there hanging, f finishing up the last of my taxes. And since I'm not happy, I figured I'd make you happy by giving you a discount on MSB. First year, $40, discount code, taxes, T-A-X-E-S, lowercase. Sale will run until the end of tax day, which I believe now is the 17th. So that's Tuesday. So I have the code set to not expire till Tuesday. Those paying in the form by mail may write taxes on the form and we'll give you a discount. Those paying by silver will give you a discount by giving you more time if you pay by silver. Instead of 12 months, we'll give you like 14. All right. With that, I've got everything wrapped up and uh, want to go ahead and get to your first call today. So let's go ahead and take that first call. Jack, my name is Jen, Kansas City, Zone 5. Uh, three things. First thing is a paleo diet. i got to tell you, a week and a half, I've lost seven pounds. Getting all the crap out of my system. I'm feeling great. Things are better. Uh, question number one is, I was 
told that black walnut emits a, an enzyme that may um, kill things around around its uh, base. And I was just wondering if there was a way you could mulch up black walnut to use along fence rows. Um, comments and questions on that. And um, second question is, I just put in raised beds. I'm a new-time gar- uh, gardener, but I use um, compost from um, the city landfill that composts thousands and thousands of tons of, of compost. I was wondering if, uh, if the chemicals in that may be too much for a garden. Comments and questions? Thanks. Love your show. Keep it up. Bye. You know, I've had people email me and say, Jack, you asked us to get our questions in in two minutes, and it's not enough time, but this bugger got in three questions in one minute. Let's go through them. First, on the black walnut, I'm assuming the reason you want to do this isn't because you think that if we do it a certain way, then it will become non-toxic to other plants, and then it'll make stuff grow. You want to put it on a fence row and use it as a suppressive mulch is what I'm getting out of you. Um, the answer is it will probably work. Uh, it will probably put a chipper through hell if you're using anything other than like branches and prunings. Black walnut is one of the hardest woods uh, that you can possibly imagine. It's a beautiful wood to work with. Uh, anything bigger than you should, should be chipping anyway, you can probably figure out something to do with it, like pistol stocks, rifle stocks, fireplace mantles. Um, a big black walnut tree suitable for cutting a single fireplace mantle might fetch... If you're talking about taking trees completely down, $2,000 or more yeah, just in timber, just just for the mantle, the piece that would make, let's say, a six-foot mantle because it's such beautiful wood. Or uh, custom gun stock makers drool over the stuff. And it used to be that a lot of guns were made with black walnut, and it was very common, and it's, it's gotten to be very expensive as natural stands of it have been cut down. The toxic thing is not really accurate. It's more accurately called allopathic. And what that means is that black walnut is a tree that grows and drops its leaves and things in such a way that it suppresses the growth of other things in its direct area, thereby eliminating competition. There's other trees that do this, like pines. Pines often have allopathic properties uh, as they drop their needles. So you could do it. You would need an awful lot of it. You would probably have to keep replacing it often. And my view personally would be that it would be better to follow a permaculture principle here, which is instead of being upset that weeds occupy space, make something occupy the space instead of the weeds. So a fence line to me is a vertical trellis. So, I mean, to me, I'd rather go along there with a typical sheet mulching uh, and plant beans and peas and hops and tomatoes and vining squash and Anything I can that would grow up onto that fence. Now, maybe you don't want stuff growing on your fence. Um, if that's the case for whatever reason, I understand. I'm just suggesting that maybe that would be a better route. In other words, you could do it, but I don't know that it makes the most sense to do it. And I don't know how long it'll last for you. Um, on your question on city compost, I use it. I have a way that I, I test each batch before I put it anywhere where I'm going to grow anything that I'm going to try to eat or anything like that that I, I really think can be affected adversely by some of the residual chemicals that are likely in there. Now, let me first say our expert council member, Paul Wheaton, uh, would scream at you, no, don't do it, run away, don't do it, it's terrible, it's awful. I don't agree. I don't agree. I see the city composting facilities as a solution to a problem. All of this waste, all of this material that would normally end up just going and causing greater pollution problems is now being recycled and traded into fertility. 
And I believe that nature heals all things at time. That said, you don't want to go put a two-inch layer of this stuff on your garden bed and then have your plants dying because there's some residual atrazine or glyphosate or something like that in it. Um, what you can do is use a very sensitive plant to test your compost. Make a 50-50 mix of the compost sample uh, that you've taken and a decent topsoil. Mix it together. Incorporate it very, very well. Plant beans in there. See how they grow. Use a little bucket. Put about 10 string beans or green, any kind of a bean. Stick it in there. If they do well, if they come up, sprout, grow, and they don't look sick or whatever, odds are anything else is going to be fine in there. That is because legumes are more sensitive to these chemicals than just about anything else. If that works out for you, uh, then you can go ahead and use it. Um, you can also use it in moderation as well. I mean, you can get a whole pickup truck loaded of this stuff for, for nothing or for a few bucks, depending on where you live. We use it extensively, and it's worked very well for us. I have gotten it in the past from a facility in Garland, Texas, where I know there was some residual chemicals in it. I didn't know yet to test it this way, and I did have problems my first year with it. And after the first year, I just, I, the first year when things had problems, I just put something in there. I just kept sticking something in there until something grew, and I grew stuff. And then by the second season, it was it was wonderful with everything. I had no more problems. So even if you get some with a little bit of an off uh, nature to it, it's probably something you can cover. Again, Paul would disagree with me, um, but my results, uh, I believe, are typical for most people. And I also believe if you take samplings and plant legumes in there, if you have legumes growing, you're not dealing with glyphosate and atrazine uh, residuals in any level that's going to have a significant impact. If it's going to impact anything, it's going to impact those. Now people say, well, if there's residuals in there, and it gets in my food and I eat it. You're inhaling about 60,000 toxic chemicals a day. Okay? Understand that. This, this concept that we're going to live in some kind of a bubble and we're going to make sure there's not a single toxin goes near our body is insane. We can minimize toxins. We certainly don't want to bring more of it in than necessary. But in this case, I think it makes sense to use a resource that's widely available. Another thing you could do is you could bring it in and use it like in lawns and things like that where you're not going to, it's, it's going to be far less of an issue and save your high quality compost for your food production if you can produce some of your own and what have you. So just some thoughts there. Again, Paul would disagree. On the last concept, it just, uh, he really asked three questions, right? He had two questions in a comment. The comment on paleo, man, I can't tell you how many people say that. I think I got another caller here that mentions it. I want you guys to know, those of you that are still skeptical about paleo, I get probably two to three emails a day. And every week when I screen calls, there's at least one or two calls on it. A lot of times, the people call in about paleo, they don't even have a question. I don't put them on the air because I'm not like the paleo like infomercial guy or something like that, you know, where the guy will just go on for like two minutes and tell me all the great things that paleo did for him. And I'll go, there's not really anything for me to respond to. And I really don't even, and a lot of times it'll be like, this isn't really for the show. I just wanted you to know. Because uh, people do use the line like that, and I do hear your calls when you call in like that if you, if you want to do that. Uh, if you ha ever call in, and you really feel like, I just want to tell Jack something, and I don't want to use email, I want to call it in, but I don't want it on the show, just say straight up, hey, Jack, this isn't for the show, I just wanted to tell you something uh, at the beginning of your call. And, and I, you know, then I'll know, because sometimes I'm not sure. I'm like, I don't know if this guy really wants this on the air. So I use the error to the side of caution. So uh, if you want to be sure, just tell me. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take the next call. Hi, my name is Naomi. I'm calling from Ithaca, New York. Um, I recently moved here from L.A. to live a more self-reliant and sustainable lifestyle. Eating whole foods and being aware of such things like BPAs, phthalates, and God knows what other chemicals from plastics that are leached into our food is a big deal to me. I just don't trust anything that's not wrapped in food-grade packaging. So anything that I buy 
from the store, I immediately put it in in food-grade storage when I get home. Um, I did manage to find green seed starter kits with renewable packaging, but I'm still not sure it is 100% safe, as it could be just a bunch of greenwashing. I would like to have some large containers on my deck with herbs and a few other plants in large pots, which can be expensive. Even if money wasn't an issue, someone just told me that the clay pots in the hardware store come from China and leach lead. I was thinking about the plastic containers that emanate the clay ones, which are less than half the price. So do they leach enough chemicals in the soil to matter to the new plant? I thought I read somewhere that as long as it is not above five, it's okay. Thanks for your reply and great show. It is very informative for the likes of me. Okay, it's my understanding on the clay pot question that lead in the clay is not the problem. It's the glazed pots, and some of the glazings have lead. Now, is it possible that a clay pot from China might contain lead? I'm sure it is. I'm sure that anything in the ground may contain some trace amounts of lead. I'm sure the Chinese are probably less strict of their quality control of lead in things since they had it in paint that they gave to kids to put in their mouth. That Yeah, Chinese-made lead clay pots probably have a higher incidence of lead uh, if there's any quality control. Now, so there, are lead, there are clay pots sold that are certified to be lead-free. Most of the time, the clay stuff that's sold certified lead-free, though, is uh, for cooking. So that, you know, obviously there's a greater risk there. Personally, um, unless you have a, a specific manufacturer or source that's been known to pr provide, you know, to have like high incidence of lead, I wouldn't worry about it. I'll, again, I'm going to go back to the thing I just said. You're breathing about 60,000 toxins into your body every day. The whole world is technically a toxic soup. You know the little white button mushrooms that you go to the store and buy? Uh, now, don't think this is because of you know, modern agriculture. If you grow them yourself, I'm saying that do the most organic version of those mushrooms you can, you can grow. Um, there is a toxin in those mushrooms that is identical to the toxin in a mushroom called a destroying angel. They grow on your, you know, your uh, front lawn and stuff like that. They look like they're flat tops, little ring around them, white. The mushroom that everybody knows you don't eat that. A couple bites of that and you're, uh, you're pushing daisies up, making mushrooms of your own if you get my drift. The two mushrooms have the same toxin. The button mushroom has it in such minute, tiny, teeny, teeny, itty-bitty quantities that if you ate a thousand of them, it still wouldn't really do anything to you, but it's there. Most grapes, if you sample enough grapes, you'll find trace amounts of cyanide in grapes. Right? Cyanide's obviously not good for us. So when we look at anything with toxins, we have to say, well, what level of toxin, and is it really an issue? And so my thing to you would be, whether I'm using a plastic pot or a clay pot, if I'm growing my own food on my back door, is that food not likely to still be far more toxin-free than anything I buy in the store, including probably certified organic? And the answer is yes. So I wouldn't sweat it. Uh, so when you're using clay pots, I think the big thing would be, would be don't buy them that are glazed. Everything that I can find on, on pots and, uh, and lead involves lead in the glazing on the pot. So when you get that pretty pot that's for you know growing stuff in, but it's been glazed on the outside, so it's bluish or orangish or whatever, and it's like that clear coat stuff, that's the more likely potential to have lead in the first place. Now, well, what if the clay came from the ground and there's lead in the clay? What if there's some lead in the ground where your garden is? 
I mean, people don't even realize that. Like, why would there be lead in the clay in the first place? Is it because the Chinese hate you and they, they, they grind up lead into fine little filings and throw it in there and mix it up and go, ha, we'll teach them? Or would it be because lead is, a, is, a, is, a, is an element that exists on planet Earth? And if you take a big enough sampling of Earth, there's probably some lead in there, right? So it's about how much lead there is. So now we're talking about a trace amount of lead that may or may not leach into the soil because the water through unglazed clay glows both in and out. And so when you water, some of your water, generally you, you, you might water a little more than you should, and there's a hole in the bottom, and some of it comes out. So some of the lead that's in there in trace amounts may or may not actually get into the root system of the plant. Then does it end up in the pepper or the leaf? So in, over time, that concentration would actually decline. So I wouldn't sweat either one. I grow things in plastic pots. I grow things in clay pots, and I'm not afraid to eat stuff out of either one of them. Uh, what I would advise you is anytime you have a concern about plastic, clay, anything like that, and you're growing things, if you're growing things at like a high alkaline or a high, high acidic environment, like blueberries and things like that, you may want to, you know, do something like construct your own container out of something like cedar or something like that. Because if you start using acid-based fertilizers to lower that pH, it might be the case that you would create greater leaching. But I wouldn't even sweat that too much to tell you the truth. You're only going to grow so much in pots anyway. You're only going to eat so much of it anyway. So one thing I really want people to do is understand that I talk all the time about eliminating toxins. And my problem with toxins isn't that there's toxins. It's that we are, we are eating what I consider a toxic soup. If we look at the way poultry is processed, it's, it's disgusting. If we look at, and don't think pink slime's gone. Just because a few people caved in and, and, and like, cause now nobody's mad anymore. Everybody's like, oh, we did that now. It'll be right back in the stores that took it out. If, if we don't stay vigilant on it. They, you know, and then soaking our corn in atrazine. Soaking soybeans in glyphosate. Soaking them in it. I mean, that's literally, do you understand the, the, the whole Roundup Ready, right, uh, thing? That you, you, you get the Roundup Ready soybean, and then you spray the entire field of soybeans while they're just beginning to grow with Roundup. And the, the soybeans are like, yeah, we don't care about Roundup. And they suck that up. It's not a little tiny leaching from a pot. It's a drenched soil, drenched leaf with this stuff. And they spray it two, maybe three times in one harvest. You know, through, cause they'll spray it when they first seed it, and then they'll spray it again when it's half grown, and if, if, if they need to, because now the weeds are becoming resistant, they might spray it a third time. And, and that's the kind of toxin I'm worried about. A toxin, you know, th this whole like we're gonna live toxic free. It's not gonna happen, so don't overthink it. The key is to minimize and take control wherever you can. Great question though, let's go take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Sherry in central Indiana. I'm Serenity Gulch on the forum. I have a question for you regarding brewing beer so that it has medicinal qualities. I'm currently reading a novel called The Last Pilgrims, which is set in a post-shit-hit-the-sand scenario. Some of the characters in there discuss a traditional way of brewing beer so that it naturally has tetracycline in it. And when I first read that, I thought it was just some artistic license on the part of the author. But doing a little bit of research, I've come to find out that there is some truth to it and that archaeologists have found mummies in um, Africa which had very high levels of tetracycline in their bones. And these were people who lived thousands of years before tetracycline became commercially available. 
And what they're attributing it to was to a, a fungus which was contaminating the grains used for brewing their beers. So I was just wondering if you've heard of this, if there's anything to it, and um, if there's any way this could be replicated in a modern context. Um, I know that if you know times get bad, someone who can brew beer is going to be pretty popular, and if you could brew medicinal beer, you'd probably be even more popular. So just um, curious to see what you have to say about this, and um, thanks, and keep up the fantastic work with the show. Bye. Well, first and foremost, it's absolutely true, and I'll, I'll, I'll post a link to an article on Discovery News about this. Um, the article was titled, Ancient Nubians Drank Antibiotic-Laced Beer, with the subtitle, A Group of People Who Lived Nearly 2,000 Years Ago in the Sudanese Nubia uh, Took Doses of Tetracycline Through Their Beer. Now, let's talk about how you make beer, how homebrew beer differs from, or some craft brews differ from modern mass production beer. When I make beer, whether I use uh, uh, you know a malt extract, a partial mash, or a full mash, which is you know do I start with raw grain or do I start with malt that's already into its its sugar format and do what they call dump and stir, or do something in between. No matter how I do that, once I get the, the what they call the wort, which is the unfermented sweet uh, liquid into the fermenter. I then pitch yeast. So far, the commercial brewery and I have done pretty much the same thing. I let that, that, that beer or ale ferment out, and when it reaches its full fermentation, I take it off of this big case cake of yeast that's on the bottom of it, and I put it into another container to prepare it for bottling. So far, I and the brewery have not really done much different. There's, you know, they've done more and they have more quality control as far as making each batch taste exactly the same. So your Miller Lite always tastes like a Miller Lite, where I'm much more free form with it and probably was drinking beer while I made it. Um, but, but so far we're the same. Now we both add some, well, they'll actually do this with pressurized carbonation. I'll add something to get the residual yeast going and put it into a bottle. But many home brewers do exactly what the commercial breweries do, which is pressurize it in a container. Now, we don't do that with bottles because it's complicated for home brewers to do uh, in a bottle. But we might take a keg and put the un uncarbonated beer in there and we'll pressurize it and that'll carbonate it. So all of that seems the same. But the big difference is at some point in the process, the commercial brewery kills everything that's alive in the beer. They kill it usually with heat, or some people that want to market their beer as having a cleaner taste, and I believe it does work. They do what's called cold filtering. So if you drink a Miller Genuine Draft, and you compare it to most American light standard lagers, which they can try to make it robust if they want to. It's a light lager in reality. It does, to me, have a better You know, the malt comes through better. It has a better flavor. And that's because they didn't kill the little living things in there. They cold filtered it out instead of heating it back up. So at some point in the process, the beer is pasteurized through heat or the living things are filtered from it. Now, people like me, we don't do that. When I, you open a bottle of my beer and you dump it into a glass, then what you'll want to do is, is you get you want to do it very slowly, and as you get down toward the end, and there's all like a quarter or half ounce in there, you'll start to see a little white line coming up off the bottom. That's yeast. It won't hurt you, but it makes the beer cloudy, 
generally speaking, with most styles, some wheats and stuff, it's good to drop a little bit in there. But in most styles, it kind of changes the flavor of the beer because now you're tasting the, the, the yeast that went to the bottom. It's actually really great for usually what I do is swish it around and, and, and chew it down real quick because it's huge in, in B12 vitamins and God knows what else. And there's nothing in there that can hurt you. No one's ever made home-brewed beer and died or gone blind or anything else you've heard about myths from Prohibition. That's when you get into distillation and people end up with uh, you know, wood alcohol and things like that instead of ethyl alcohol. So let that go. So first of all, we need to understand that whenever we're doing a natural brewing process, we're not killing the yeast. There's going to be other things there besides the yeast. We want the yeast to dominate the beer. We want the, like the, like, there might be a hundred living things. Get this, a hundred living things in there. Some of them will die because of the acidity level as it increases, and some of them will die because of the alcohol level. But tetracycline uh, happens to be something that can survive that. So, and it's actually, tetracycline isn't even alive, which is probably why it survives, because it's, it comes from this mold or fungus that grew on the grain, and then it becomes tetracycline, and then it is what it is. Okay, so it's not alive. It, it comes from a living thing that if that living thing doesn't survive, it's still there. But if we filter it out, pasteurize it, whatever, it's gone. So the potential for something like tetracycline exists in all craft-made beers, but it's likely not there. Now let's talk about why brewers do everything in their power to make sure that, that, that their yeast strain that they threw in there is dominant. Because yeast is one of the biggest characteristics that creates flavor in a beer or reduces certain flavors or esters or fruity tastes or whatever in a beer. It makes the beer the character if you, if you want. If I make two batches of beer that are absolutely the same, and I ferment one with a Belgian ale yeast, and I ferment one with an English ale yeast, they're going to taste entirely different. The Belgian ale yeast is going to give us a fruitiness, an esteriness, uh, which is great, but we don't want it in our British ale because it's not true to style. So... The one thing is flavor, but then there's a lot of things that can get in a beer, and if you've ever made beer and you didn't quite get your sanitation right, and the wrong thing gets in there, your beer tastes like crap. So a lot of this Nubian beer that was full of tetracycline may have tasted like garbage, but if you drink it all the time, you might like it, because if you give the average person a beer that's never had one before, they're not exactly in love with it. Even if it's like a Coors Light, it takes a while to get used to beer, I would say, for the average person that's never had one before. And if you hand them something like a Sam Adams or uh, you know an IPA from like you know uh, Red Hook, like a Red Hook IPA, it's really highly hopped, that's, and that's their first beer, if you want to keep your kids off of beer, go get yourself a really highly hopped IPA. And when they're 12, go, hey, here, kid, you can have a sip. That, that'll do it right there. They'll be like, I don't ever want that again. Just tell them all the beer in the world tastes like that, kid. You'll, they'll never have to worry about the drinking underage because they won't want it. But if you if you become accustomed to it, you know, people like me love IPAs. We love that bitterness it, 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 because it's something we've become accustomed to. So they likely like their beer as much as we do. But if you started brewing beer in that free form, you, what you're allowing then is natural yeast and, and things to get into the beer. There are classic beer styles that do this. Um, if, if you go to Belgium, you buy something called a lambic. 
where they take the beer, the wort, and they put it in these big concrete tanks on the roof of the brewery, and it's just completely open to the air. They only brew it at a certain time of year, and you can't even get it right. You can try. There's home brewers that do pretty good clones of it. You can't really get it right anywhere other than about this 10-mile radius because that's where these indigenous yeasts and, and, and different bacteria, lactobacillus bacteria that create this tartness to it are. So you could do it, but it's the, the problem is you're not going to know what you've done. And basically, these... This beer that had the tetracycline in it came from, uh, they had a mold on the grain. And that mold is what produced the tetracycline, which ended up in the final beer. So you would have to get this moldy grain, and you don't know what you're doing there. And there's other things that can happen with mold on grain that cause people to hallucinate and get sick and things like that. So you're kind of rolling the dice. That said, what I would like to point out with medicinal beer is anything you put into a beer that you brew in a classic homebrew style is going to end up in the beer when it's done. So I've had beers with lavender in them, and they're amazing. I've had like a lavender honey wheat ale. It was unfreaking believable. When you take and you, as long as you don't overheat the herbs and things like that, anything that would be medicinal, and hops are a medicinal, by the way. So in, in, in essence... When brewed with home brew, all beers can have some medicinal quantity, and you could tailor them to do certain things. But I don't think they're a way to make tetracycline. I think we're better off with with fish antibiotics because we have known doses and quantities uh, than trying to make it with beer. I think it could be done, but it would be very difficult to know what you're actually ending up with and to even know if this particular batch has tetracycline. Yeah, this was found in mummies. So these people that were mummified uh, at the time were the wealthiest of the wealthy. These guys were probably drinking beer every day. If you did all your beer that way uh, and you drank beer every day and somebody else made it for you and served it to you, odds are over time you would build up large amounts in your body too. Uh, but again, I don't think it's a modern solution in a post-apocalyptic world. Let's take another call. Evening, Jack. I hope everything else is going well. Great show with uh, Wade on the Bugout Vehicles. Add two quick questions. One, what do you prefer for data backup since it's not feasible to print out everything in hard copy? And two, given your latest situation with your current ISP, what are your thoughts about some form of communications redundancy, even if it's not necessarily the Internet? Thanks. Good luck to everything else, and I hope your wife Dorothy is doing better from her old surgery. Take care. Bye. Well, first, I'm sure Dorothy appreciates the concern, and um, she actually has to Monday, um, part of my little trip here I'm doing this weekend is we'll be down there Monday morning. She has to have something done again, but it should be less than last time. She did very well last time. Uh, they offered to put her completely under. She decided not to, and I think that was a good choice for her, and that's what she plans to do again. And again, this time it's less work, but it's like they're redoing something they didn't quite get right the first time. So thank you for thinking of her. Uh, and those of you guys that are listening today, you know, maybe Monday morning or Sunday afternoon, maybe send a few thoughts, prayers, that type of thing. It's not a big deal, but it's never comfortable, you know. And she is my wife, and I do love her. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, on your, your questions, for data backup, I do a combination of things. One, I have everything on my work computers backed up to more conventional, you know, on-site hard drives. I, I should probably go to something like Carbonite, and I probably will soon. Um, 
it, it just makes sense because my my problem with the way I have things backed up right now is let's say my office burns down. Well, so does my my hard drive, uh, my backup hard drives here. So it probably makes sense to set up offsite backup. Uh, for just about anybody, it's not real expensive. So we'll, we'll probably add Carbonite as, a, as another thing this year. It's just we've been careful about adding expenses to our, our business over time. And uh, most of what is critical to my business is off-site anyway. It's online. So that, that brings us – well, let me give you another one too. Um, I believe that there's a certain data that should be on your person – Uh, and it's critical to maybe business and family and things like that. And my personal choice is the Corsair Survivor Drive. Uh, and you can get them up to like 32 gig. I think I have one in 16 and one in 8, and I'll probably add a higher gig one. They come in a little tube-like thing. It screws together. Um, I took one and broke. I should probably put this in video for you guys. I took one and, and held it like an impact tool, so the bottom of it, not the screw-on part, but the bottom part was sticking out the bottom of my fist. And broke a one-inch pine board with it. So I had a person like a karate thing, you know, hold it up and smash through it. It did nothing to it. Uh, it's waterproof. It floats, even though it's made out of metal because there's air inside. And it's sealed. Uh, so that's what I carry for, you know, on your person, in your bug out bag, in your vehicle, critical data. Uh, and, of course, you can encrypt the data on there with TrueCrypt as well. Of course, that requires that somewhere you have a computer. So we have multiple laptops multiple batteries, and we do have gear where we could solar charge them or use generators to charge them if we had to. That would get us through most things, especially short-term, mid-term uh, events. On the ISP thing, I, I think it's important that people understand what happened. And uh, I need to, the guy that helped me out, I'm going to track you down next week. I've been really busy, but I owe you one, and uh, I'm going to take care of you. There was a guy from uh, Wild Blue out in, like, Oregon or Washington or something like that. And he got in touch with me, and he got my repair moved up by over a week, and he got it taken care of. But that was for my internet at our, our homestead, and uh, in, you know, homestead slash retreat. And we have it there so that when we're there, well, I can use internet. So if I happen to be here, and I go, I go back there, and I decide I want to answer your emails in the afternoon, which I do quite often, um, that's one of the ways I did it. So the only reason you guys even knew about it is I told you because... You, most of you that need things from me, customer service, stuff like that, if you email me at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, odds are you're going to get an answer before dinner time most days, and if not, shortly after dinner, depending on when I batch out emails at home. So I wasn't able to do that. We still had Internet. The show still went on. We had Internet here at the office. And if the Internet at the office went down, I could get by on that. I wouldn't be uploading YouTube videos or anything, but I could, you know, maybe I cut the bit rate down to 16 or something like that for the shows uh, on those days, but I could record from home. I could upload from home. So I have two locations with Internet. So I have redundancy, two totally different kinds. I am not in love with satellite Internet. I will... Uh, as I've said, we're actually looking to buy a place in, in, in Texas in addition to the, the apartment we have with our, with our son back in Dallas for when we go stay. Uh, and we're looking at maybe making it where we stay more often, somewhere in East Texas. Um, just to be honest with you guys, I like it there better than here. I, I just do. I like it here, but I love it in Texas. And uh, we've got some pangs to, to spend more time there. And uh, so that... We will keep this as our bug out location. We've done so much with it. 
but we're thinking about next year uh, moving somewhere in East Texas. If any of you know in East Texas that listen, a, a place that, that would be ideal for us and would be close to someone that listens, we'd love to hear from you about that. But on the backup communications, I think it's more than just Internet, though. I just had Clay Vitus on about CB Radio. I think CB Radio is a great means of backup communications for the prepper. I want you guys that are all like, well, ham's better, ham's better, ham's better. I get so tired of it. It's like a little brother, big brother argument. Like the little brother gets away with things the big brother doesn't, so the big brother hates the little brother. Just stop it. You know, really. Um, but, but here's something interesting to think about. Um, a lot of people that are hams, they're not like upper-end hams, like Tim that's going to come on and talk to us next month about ham radio, that have done all the extra work and, and gotten you know the mid-tier or top-tier credential and know how to use all the different bandwidths and everything. A lot of them just go out and get that first, it was at the general, uh, you know, the general class, and uh, then they get a two-meter radio. And then they got those repeaters out there, and they're pinging the repeaters, and they can talk for miles and miles and miles by using the repeaters in two-meter band. That's great. What happens? And they say, well, if the shit hits the fan, we're, we'll always be able to get, you know, I can use a couple watts here, and I can cover half the state or the whole state or ping a couple different things and get across the country or whatever. Yeah. So in a total breakdown of society where it's like Patriots, the coming collapse, one of those type of things, which is you know not what we prepare for every day, for God's sakes. But let's say it's the, the, the potential for you know people burning the cities down, police departments, half of the guys have left and went home to take care. That kind of like really bad scenario where they say, this is going to get me by, who's going to maintain all those repeaters? Do you really think the guys that maintain them now are going to be able to do that when people are like being shot for the food in their house? Who, yeah, I know they stay up during emergencies, but um, CB radio, as long as you have one and you have a 12-volt battery and a way to charge it, and somebody on the other side has the same thing, you've got comms. And there's a lot more people with CBs than ham radios. Now, the ham radio guy says, well, I have gear, I can switch over to CB, and great. But I'm just saying, it's a great means of secondary communication. And ham is better But it's just like anything that's better, it's got weaknesses. I can tell you there's weaknesses on an M1 Abrams tank, but I sure don't want to fight one uh, if I'm carrying an M16 and nothing else. But there's still weaknesses there. So there's weaknesses in everything. Uh, I also think that people need to really think about MERS. I talk about it often, but I don't think people get the force multiplier effect of MERS. My wife and I live on five acres, up in the sticks, by ourselves. Now let's say something trips one of our MERS sensors. And maybe we pull up a wireless camera. We see something going on out there. We're not sure what it is. And I decide I'm going to go check it out. Now, my wife can stay in the house with the base station and talk to my MERS unit. I can stick an earpiece with Vox in it in my ear. I still hear my wife and I still hear the motion detectors. So if whatever's going on has moved from sector one to sector two, I know it. And she has eyes on it. And she can tell me what's going on from the house. It's like having... Four, five, six, depending on how many sensors you put out there, extra observe. Now, they can't engage, but they can observe. They can't report what, but they can report if there's movement and heat. So MERS, short range, call it a mile for God's sakes, one to two miles. But on your property, it's like having multiple sentinels if you add the security. So MERS and CB, 
no license, plug and play, easy to learn, easy to implement. I think they're huge. Ham, absolutely as well. But again, like I said on the CB show, I think ham is more specialized. I don't think everybody wants to go take a test and everybody wants to go get all these different radios and wants to learn all these different frequencies. If you want to do it, go freaking nuts with it. And if you're putting together a group of people that are going to rely on each other, I strongly recommend a couple of them become well-versed with ham technology. But, you know, other people, if you look at any military unit, everybody knows how to pick up and use the, the radio. Everybody knows how to make a call. But in a, in a unit, there's a comm specialist. And I think that we need to start thinking about that with all our skill sets. Everybody should be multiversal, diverse, and capable of doing everything a little bit. But we also, with, when we start having communities and groups we're putting together, then there's people that are specialized. And the comm specialist should have ham. But that doesn't mean everybody should. Those are my thoughts. Let's take another one. This is the morning after the second day of bugging out. Uh, there was a train derailment about three miles away from my house with a nasty sulfur fire. The first night, my wife was a little reluctant and didn't want to leave, so we just went to her brother's house But the, and then went home in the morning. The winds changed that day, so we spent the second night in a hotel because they extended the evacuation zone a half mile away from our house, and my wife was having a hard time breathing with all the sulfur smell in the air. Uh, I encourage people to practice their bug-out plans beforehand, though, because we found some holes in our preps, but it was too late to fix them as we were running out of the house. If you guys want to follow this, follow what I did as it happened, I posted a few things on the forum if you just search for reluctant reluctant wife and I'm going to do a full write-up on everything that happened at my blog, thecontingencylifestyle.com. I'd like to thank you, Jack, and all the forum members for all the help they've given me and advice over the past couple of years as I've learned to prep. I wouldn't be nearly as far along without you guys. Thanks. Well, first off, I couldn't agree more that we need to be practicing our bug outs. It's, it's beyond planning. Planning is great, but, you know, there's a saying in the military, no plan survives contact with the enemy, so contingency is always necessary. So there's never a time where a military plan is, we will go here, we will capture this objective, we will take over the objective, and the enemy will be ours, and that is all. Go. There's always, that's the first part of the plan, and if that fails, then we're going to drop, this is a fallback location, this is an exit strategy, this is a reinforcement strategy, this is a secondary objective. Assuming we get to the first objective and there's nobody there, and holding it's really not important, we thought we were going there to get the enemy, and the enemy's not there. Therefore, where's another objective that since we already have the field deployed and, and ready to go, the, the team deployed and ready to go, where they could go take a secondary objective? If they turn on that secondary objective, Objective. What is their comms? See, see, that's how it works. It's like a, a military strategy. It's not like the economic strategy that the ass clowns use from above. A military strategy means you're going to get shot at, and you have to have these plans so they get done right. And that's how our bug out plans have to be. And you're not going to know a lot of the contingencies until you say, well, let's just try it. Let's just try it. We would pack all of this stuff up. How long is it going to take? And people say, well, I can be out of here in 30 minutes. Really? And maybe you can. I don't know. But if you've never tried it, you don't know that. Uh, so practicing and, I mean, also, like, when you when we come up with these routes, like I tell you to have three possible destinations, three different routes to each destination, multiple rally points along them, uh, you know, once in a while, drive on one. See if it works. 
See if you can find other contingencies in addition to the contingencies you've already created. So, completely agree. Now, I went by the forum. I searched for reluctant wife. Apparently, there's a lot of reluctant wives because I got lots of results and could not find the post this guy's talking about. I also went to his blog, and a blog, again, his blog is thecontingencylifestyle.com, um, and I'm going to give the caller some help right now. You have WordPress set up so that your blog is not your homepage. You have a homepage called Home that has a little paragraph And it says, at Contingency Lifestyle Together, we learn essential skills, yada, yada, yada. It's like not even one paragraph. It's one long run-on sentence, and that's it, and that's all. Uh, that should be, a, you should change the name of that page to About Us. You should go into your WordPress settings, and you should say, don't, don't say to use an individual page as a homepage, and let the homepage default to your blog. If you, I thought he didn't even do anything. I wasn't even going to give him a link because I'm like, well, you never really actually did this. But he actually has a lot of posts. And if you look over to the right in the, in the in hand margin, you'll see recent posts. You'll see like his last five posts. I'm going to link to, for him instead of his main blog, the post he did about this bug out so that you guys can follow that. And then you can go forward and backward and see the rest of his posts. But if you get to his homepage, unless you know blogs and you know to look over there for recent posts, it's almost impossible to figure out what's going on. It looks like a guy that set up a blog, put contact and find us on it, made one post and went away. It's not what it is, but bud, now that you've got your bug out squared away and you're back to your daily living, get your blog squared away. So when people come see it and you get an opportunity like this, they'll be able to follow you and know what's going on. Um, so again, those of you that are using WordPress for your blog, in the settings, there's a place where you can specify a page to be your homepage. Unless you really know what you're doing and why you're doing it, don't do that. Default to your running blog. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead take another call. A little bonus uh, internet business tip there. Hey, Jack. A year ago, I had a gluten test and a DNA test done at enterolab.com. It showed that I am gluten sensitive and that I also have the celiac gene. So I have to be gluten-free for the rest of my life. Listening to your podcast, I was also introduced to the paleo diet, which takes it to the next level. Great results in my health. My question is about go-to snacks. I find myself grabbing raw cashews, pecans, and almonds way too often. I'm getting way too much omega-6 in my diet. What do you munch on for snacks? Also, I keep intending to join the member support brigade, but never get around to it. You've changed my life in many ways, and I'm just going to do it right now, today. Thanks, Jack. Okay, starting off with the fact I'm not a doctor, and I don't give medical advice, and anything that you're doing with your body, it's up to you to speak to your doctor or decide to do for yourself. Let me give you some, some thoughts on some things here. Uh, number one, I personally believe that the main reason that people say they go on a, 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 a paleo-style diet And then they end up saying, I'm hungry, I need to snack a lot, things like that, or I'm always going to the cashews and the almonds and stuff, and, the, and we'll talk about omega-6 in a second here, um, is because they don't eat enough fat. That, that's the big reason, because all of a sudden, it's all about protein. It's not all about protein. Please understand that we learned from Dr. Greg Ellis in his book, The Glycation Factor, that 60% of the calories that go into your body as protein end up as carbohydrate in the bloodstream. So if we eat 100 grams of protein over a given period of time, we end up with 60 grams of carbohydrate in the bloodstream. 
Right? When we eat fat, it ends up in the bloodstream and is burned and utilized as fat. And, and stop believing the mainstream medicine bullshit on this stuff that the fat is bad for you. Some fats are worse for you than others. The problem with omega-6 is they can lead in excess amounts. They, they, they compete for certain enzymes at omega-3s, which are very healthy for you do, and they can also lead to inflammation. So we don't want to do too much omega-6, that's true. Now the key is how much of these almonds and cashews and stuff like that are you eating? You know, that's, that's, that's one thing to do. So we can do things with them that are going to sound like completely not a good idea nutritionally is if we hold on to the old paradigm, but if we accept the new paradigm, that, that animal fat particularly is good. So one thing we can do to make, let's say, a small amount of cashews far more satisfying is give them flavor and increase the animal fat. And how do we do that? Well, we could melt something like a tablespoon of butter. Right? We could mix our cashews with that. We could take something like a Cajun seasoning or, or salt and pepper or something like that. And we could use the butter that's now sticky to put that seasoning and we could mix those nuts up. Right? And now here's what's going to happen. You might feel like you could eat the whole bowl, but if you eat a much smaller amount than you normally were, the fat from that butter is going to create a satisfying effect in the body. And, and if you give your body time, okay, I've taken the calories in, wait. Wait, stop eating and wait. Ten minutes later, that hunger that didn't seem to go away will be gone, and it'll last a long time. I'm going to tell you guys something that you might find hard to believe, um, and this did not happen immediately. Remember, I've been doing this for like a year now and tweaking it and figuring out what works for me. Right now, I generally get up in the morning. I have a couple cups of coffee. I use cream, not half and half. I use cream in my coffee, pure cream, two or three cups of coffee every morning. Uh, with probably two or three tablespoons of cream in each one. Maybe two is probably closer to accurate um, and good, rich coffee. So that's quite a bit of calories from the cream. I generally don't eat anything till about 2, 30, 3 o'clock when I'm done and out of the office for the day. I usually go home and I'll eat something like some pepperoni, some dry sausage, maybe some a piece of leftover cold meat from the night before. Like if I do burgers the night before, maybe I'll pull If I usually make three burgers. If you buy a pound, I make three one-third pound burgers. I usually eat one. The wife eats one. And then there's one left over. I might pull that out and cut a little piece off of it and eat it. Uh, if I made bacon to go with the burgers, I make bacon burgers without the bun. Right? That's and uh and cheese on them and i might cut off maybe a third or a quarter of that burger and just eat that cold out of the refrigerator and then i eat at dinner time and then i usually have a snack in the evening and that's about all i eat anymore now i want you to understand my weight loss isn't because of that that is because of my weight loss in other words i didn't do that to lose the weight the more weight i've lost the tighter my body's become in my abdomen region i've just You know, I've got this last little roll down here on the lower gut that's slowly going away, but the sides and all. I told my wife like a couple months ago, I was standing in front of the mirror and I saw something I hadn't seen forever. She said, what? I said, my abdominal muscles. You know, And I'm not doing sit-ups. I'm not working out. So this stuff's working. So I'd say give it time. But here's some other things that you can do if you'll accept the fact that fat isn't a bad thing. Cook up a bunch of bacon, right? Nice and crispy. Put it in a Ziploc bag and stick it in the refrigerator. Go get a piece of bacon. Additionally, maybe go get yourself a nice bag of jerky once in a week. Set that aside. Okay. So now I've got now the jerky is almost all protein, very little fat. The bacon brings some fat to the table. So if you eat a little bit of jerky and you're still hungry, go break one piece of bacon in half and eat, eat it, or eat a whole piece if you want to. I don't even care. I'll eat two pieces if I feel like it. Uh, but start adding to your diet things that are higher in natural fats, butter, animal fats, things like that. When you cook steak, right, cook a little more than you need. 
Cook it. You know, get a, if you would normally get a piece, you know, whatever size you eat, get one a little bit bigger. Take the extra piece, put it in the refrigerator. Take it to work with you. Get your, if you go to work, you're saying, well, I got to take this stuff to work. Go to work with a, one of those little coolers, man. Put a piece of steak in there, a little bit of beef jerky, a couple pieces of bacon, and then your, your, your almonds and your cashews as well, and, and eat small amounts of different things. Also, one of the things that we can do when we're fighting, if it's it, usually the craving is the stomach becoming accustomed to less bulk, right? Because usually there's so much crap and you're dropping all, it's, it's not just a gluten thing for people that are sensitive to the gluten like the collar is, but it's the sugar that's going into the bloodstream. And now the body's got this different dynamic going on, and it takes time for the body to adjust to this. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors never ate full meals except for like probably celebrations or once a day at the end of the day. They ate little bits here and there, and that meant they had to go around in a state that we would look at as hungry, but their bodies were adapted to it. And that's part of what we're doing is we're adapting to this small amount, this little pouch that I would be carrying with me through my daily activities, eating from it as a hunter-gatherer 10,000 years ago. And it would be whatever I could get my hands on. So it would, it would necessitate variety. So one of the things we could do is say, well, one of the things our hunter-gatherer ancestors probably did, it's pure conjecture, but probably did, I'm out hunting, I'm tracking a deer, I'm getting a little bit hungry, I look down and there's a patch miner's lettuce. What do you think I'm going to do? I don't want lettuce. No, I'm going to start picking it up off the ground. And because it fits the paleo rule that Jack has, and apparently nobody else agrees with this, or nobody else really agrees with this. I've never heard anybody else say this other than when I've asked certain paleo people uh, about it, like Rob Wolf himself said, yeah, that sort of makes sense. Is it If I can eat it in its raw state, it's paleo. So we can do that. We can also do things like, let's throw some fruit in there once in a while. Don't eat apples all the time. But if you want to eat a half an apple in the middle of the day, go ahead. It's not it's not going to kill you. There is it, it, uh, the ratio of sugar to to uh, to to fiber into the total and the calories. That's the other thing, right? An apple has so little cal caloric impact that it's only going to have so much impact on the body anyway. You you can't put. I don't care. You can use gasoline, right? But if I only put a gram of gasoline on the fire, I can't create anywhere near what I can create with 20 oak logs is a raging blaze. It's a very small, there's only so much there. It's only a gram. So we can look at some other things like some fruits and stuff like that we can add. And then there's fruits that are very, very low in carbohydrates as well. Uh, a strawberry is, for all intents and purposes, you know, four or five strawberries are zero, right? So maybe we can add some strawberries to what you're doing, right? So now... Now we start to expand things a little bit. Grapes are high in sugar, but if we're going through a half a bunch of grapes a week and we're eating two or three here and two or three there, we're spreading the impact of the sugar out over time the way a hunter-gatherer would. So expand your range. More animal fats, right? More meats with fat on them. When you're eating the almonds, the cashews, the sunflower seeds and things like that, Bring another fat into the equation to help satisfy yourself with less. And don't be afraid to add some other things that normally we would think of, well, that's got sugar in it. And when all else fails, when I was getting on with the miner's lettuce, just eat a salad. Make yourself a big green salad. Okay, So something like lettuce, spinach, various greens, maybe a little bit of tomato, a little bit of pepper, uh, and uh, maybe a little bit of cucumber. The only thing in there with any real sugar content is the tomato. If we're using a quarter of a tomato thinly sliced across the whole thing, pfft, 
right? Come on. There's nothing there. Make your dressings up. Instead of, look, people are, oh, I'm worried about omega-6, and then they turn around and listen to the government and use freaking canola oil. The whole damn thing's omega-6 damn near. Right? It's a huge source of omega-6, but it's healthy for you. little olive oil, little lemon juice, a little bit of fresh oregano, a little bit of fresh thyme, uh, maybe a little fresh basil. Mix that up. Put that on your salad. You know, you can put a little container in your... So you could go to work with this little hunter-gatherer kit, and I bet you if you went to work with a little hunter-gatherer kit like that, you might continue to eat lunches once in a while, but what will happen is that damn kit will start getting smaller and smaller. You'll be taking less and less with you every day to work because you get tired of bringing it home and putting it back in the refrigerator. And, and what I'm telling you that I've experienced, and I can't guarantee the same results for everybody, but what I've experienced is I now probably eat a snack of maybe two or three hours before bed, like the guy around the campfire probably did, and then I that, that's at like 8.30, 9 o'clock I eat something. Maybe I have a beer, one beer at the end of the night or a mixed drink, and uh, later than that, and then I go to bed. I wake up in the morning, I have those cups of coffee with some cream in it, and I don't need to get until 2, 2.30. I don't get sweaty. I don't get sick. I don't get hungry. I don't get nauseous. I don't even know I'm hungry. I go home and I eat a couple nuts, and I go, yeah, I'm going to go in the refrigerator, because as soon as I eat it, it triggers a hunger response. So then I go in the refrigerator and pull out a piece of meat or bacon or something like that, and I eat that, and then I'm good till dinner. And then I eat a great big steak or something like that for dinner with maybe a salad, maybe some broccoli, uh, once in a while some corn. And all I can say is, The results have been phenomenal. So uh, there's a mini paleo episode right there on snacking because a lot of people have asked me about that. So broaden the snack profile, and you'll realize the other thing is over time, the whole snacking requirement will, will decline. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Hollis from uh, Wilmington, Delaware, also Rook and DE on the forums. Just want to let you know I'm headed up to our land that we just bought back in November of 2012, all because... You inspired me and my family to get prepared and to live the better life. So this is our first weekend going to be up there working on the land and starting to establish our homestead in upstate New York. And I just wanted to share that and thank you for that. And everyone that listens to the podcast, uh, encourage you to follow your heart and your dream on what it is that you're looking to do, whether it's prepping or to be an urban home center or whatever it might be. But once again, Jack, thanks for the great work and uh, keep up the great work and keep up the great podcast. Bye. I think that's awesome. I'll correct the obvious flaw. He said November of 2012. I would bet he meant November of 2011 because if you've set up anything or done anything in November of 2012 yet uh, already, if you've already done that, you've been there and done that, please get in touch with me. I would like to talk to you about telling me Uh, who's going to win some sports games, <laughs> exactly which stocks are going to plummet and which stocks are going to go up, because I'm going to get really, really rich. So I, I think he just misspoke, and trust me, it's someone on the microphone that probably misspeaks at least once a day. I understand it. I'm just saying it before somebody else gets on you. Let them alone, guys. You know what he meant. Um, I do think it's an awesome call, though, because it's an example of somebody doing it. So, hey, you, you just called in, right? I want you to do something for me. Get me some pictures of you and your family at this place setting it up. And get that picture to me. Remind me who you are. I will make damn sure that one gets in the Revolution 2.0 uh, video. Remember, guys, if you want to submit pictures for the Revolution 2.0 video, which is a song we play every day, the original video we did over a year ago, With people all from the community, we did over 200 pictures I got into the video. There were more than 500 I couldn't use because that's how many submissions were. I want to do more this time. I might let the song 
Display twice in a row to get more of your pictures in. Send pictures to Jack at the Survival Podcast.com. Only send me two or three, guys. Don't send me like 400 pictures or even 12. Pick your best one, two, or three pictures. Send them on over to me. Put Revolution 2.0 in the subject line. That'll get them into the right folder. And when we do episode 1000, we're going to release a new version of the video. And then episode 1000 is going to be all your testimonials just like this. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we paid off our debt. Here's how we did whatever. You know, whatever you want to tell us about what you've done. That's going to be episode 1000. The 800 number for that thing, for that project, to call in those is not 866-65-THINK. It's its own number. I've got it set up. I'm going to launch that whole program next week. I don't want to do that here on a weekend while I'm traveling and things like that. So that's coming. Uh, but I think it's awesome that what this guy's saying is whatever it is you want to do, go do it. Because that's what I'm trying to get at. Right? Like, like I, I talked today about living a paleo lifestyle. You want to do it? Give it a shot. You know, you want to continue to eat wheat and, 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 you know, live a vegetarian lifestyle and that does it for you and you're happy? Go ahead. I don't care. You know, don't try to convince me I need to change what I think, but I'm not trying to change what you think. I'm just telling you what I think and you think what you think and we'll all go on about our merry way. But, you know, I want more land than I have and I want this big ass homestead. I'm thinking East Texas is the way to go, uh, long term, you know, and I, that's what I want. Or maybe I even want to someday put together a community of like-minded people that kind of share borders of their property instead of share property. I don't know if it's in the cars or not, but those are the types of things I want to do. But you do, if you want to live, in downtown Sheboyganville, and you want to live on a 10-acre lot, and you want to produce a ton of food out of your backyard, you can do it. Do whatever you want to do. Don't let anything stop you. Don't worry that somebody might take it away. Don't worry that somebody might complain. Go do it. And if you can't get it done, figure out a way to get it done. If you have to move, if you have to change, if you have to adapt, improvise, overcome, do whatever it is. But don't let anybody steal your vision. Don't let anybody steal your dreams of what you want in your life because it can be done. Maybe it's like this. Maybe it's, I don't want my homestead where I live. I want my homestead up in upstate New York. Go do it. There's so much opportunity right now. Capitalize on the opportunity and get whatever it is you want in your life started. Once you get it started, you'll figure it out from there. Just be smart and be careful and stay away from bad debt. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Randy from Houston. I uh, was listening a little bit behind, I believe it was episode 852, uh listener call-in show, and uh, one of the callers uh, was asking a question about 22 subsonic rounds. I think they had an issue with raccoons getting into their duck pen and getting uh, having their way with everything. And uh, I had the same problem last summer with raccoons getting into my duck pen and, and my chicken pen, and... Uh, just a couple of uh, solutions or, or a couple of ideas that really helped us. Number one was completely enclosing everything. We've got heavy gauge wire on all four or five sides of our pen, uh, including the roof. That way those little suckers cannot chew their way through. I'm not, not chicken wire, but uh, uh, the heavy gauge stuff, hardware cloth type, uh, type wire. And secondly, uh, we do use 22s to get rid of the... Uh, get rid of the raccoons around there as well um, but uh, not so much uh, where, where we live we can't just fire off in, in case there's a, a miss we don't want the rounds uh, flying off to the neighbor's place but we uh, we do use the large uh, varmint traps from tractor supply uh, we keep those baited and uh, when we catch one of those suckers you're absolutely right a headshot even at 
point blank range is the only way to put down a raccoon because uh, those things are tough as hell. But uh, anyway, uh, we we dispatch them with the twenty two. But uh, really, the best thing to do is catch the suckers in a trap and, and take care of them that way. Anyway, just uh, passing that along and uh, love the show, man. Been a listener for three years now, and I learn something new every day. Keep up the great work. Great call. Definitely agree with everything. Couple things to add. One, let's say you live in a place where you're a little bit concerned about the the range of a .22, which is like a mile and a half if it gets the right trajectory or whatever, and it's not a, a loudness issue. Like shooting wouldn't be a big deal where you are, but you are worried about just maybe what's off in the direction of where you would be eliminating raccoons. Let me tell you what's not real loud and what will eliminate the hell out of a raccoon real quick. 410 full choke, four, number four buckshot. And there's about nine number four bucks in there. Uh, and with a full choke, center that pattern on the head, dead coon every time. So if you can shoot, you just don't want to be blasting away with anything really loud. Um, but you don't want the rifle uh, potential trajectory and range. 410 number four buck, full choke, and a good, powerful flashlight. Great coon elimination system. May not be right for everybody, just something I thought I'd throw in. The bigger thing I want to throw in, if you have raccoons eating your chickens, eating your ducks, trying to get your bunnies, and things like that, and you're eliminating them, take it one step further. They're trying to eat you, uh, eat you out of house and home. They're trying to eat your animals. You eat them. I think most people have no idea how good raccoon is. Raccoon is a great protein source, really good source of meat. Now, city coon, I might be a little bit more worried because they're very big on eating garbage. Uh, but if you're out in the sticks a little bit, you know, I mean, you got an animal that's eating mussels and uh, all kinds of things out of the forest and stealing other people's chickens and ducks. And if you eat chickens and ducks, then it's good for you. Raccoon, great eating stuff. Also, um, depending on what time of year they're being eliminated, the different pelt qualities. But when the pelt is high quality, it's an amazing high quality pelt. Uh, tanned out and what have you. There's even some money in it. Uh, raccoon pelts, I don't know, I haven't trapped in so long. I mean, trap like run a trap line for fur. And so I did that when I was in high school uh, for money. Uh, but I remember getting somewhere in the neighborhood of like, I got to say like between $12 and $18, depending on the size and quality for raccoon pelts. And this was like in 1986. Now, I don't know it could be higher or lower due to the fur market or whatever. But I mean, I made some decent money on muskrat, coon, fox, even possum. I think I got like two bucks a possum. Uh, now this was stretched and also there was a lot of work. You could, the way I, when I used to do it, you could go like take the whole animal down there and then the guy would skin it and do all the work and you'd get a very small fee or you could skin them, put them on stretcher boards, salt the hides and take down the cleaned hides and you got a much better uh, cost. About the only thing that I never, uh, uh, took in for, for pelt and believe it or not, there was a, there was a price, I think it was like a dollar or something was skunk. And I just, uh, an occasional skunk that you caught was, you dealt with it and, And off it went. It was just too putrid to deal with. But covered up, sent around the trap area real good. But if you're trapping and killing any animal, unless there's a specific reason not to eat it, like it looks diseased or rabid or something like that, use the resource. Even if you like, like people would say, well, I don't want to eat raccoon. Fine. If you don't want to eat raccoon, you know what? You killed it. Do something with it. Cut it up. Boil it. Feed it to your dogs. They'll like it. Uh, but really, give it a try. It's only something that you would think you're not, you shouldn't eat, 
because somebody else told you that. Um, think about it this way. A lot of people that would eat a chicken wouldn't eat a raccoon. What's really the difference? Think about this. What's really the difference there? Um, both omnivores, both high-quality protein. I mean, there's, there, it's not like you're eating a rat. And trust me, there's times when you'd be happy to eat a rat. But it's not like you're eating a, a Norwegian rat out of the sewers of New York City. So please consider when you're killing anything, using the resources, if not for yourself, maybe for someone else. Uh, and I'll tell you an interesting thing to do with raccoon. Cut it up leaving with the bones on and pressure can it, just like you would any meat. Use directions for like pressure canning, um, I would say like uh, the same, same kind of recipe you would use for like uh, doing beef. And uh, man, you, you, know, you don't have to even debone it or whatever. When you take it out of the can later, the meat will just fall off the bones. You've got that juice a little bit of sweet potato, hmm? right? A little bit of celery, a little bit of carrot. Uh, warm it up, and to, you know, take the juice, dump that into your pot. Add a little bit of water. Add all your vegetables. Uh, cook them till they're just starting to get soft. Then throw your meat in because you don't want to overcook it. It's already been canned. And bring that and maybe thicken it a little bit. Raccoon stew, buddy, like that on the go um, from your own storage preps. Please use resources. If you kill something, do something with it. You take a life. You owe it to the, 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 the being to make the life have mattered for something. Uh, we don't want to beat our chickens, but they're still something that shares our planet. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. My name is Scott. I am a law enforcement officer up in Wisconsin, mid-sized community. My 18 years of experience up here. Just started listening to your podcast. I love it. It's pretty decent. The latest one really stuck to court, episode 864, Conversations with Jack about the pointless laws and ordinances making criminals out of citizens. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we have a huge uh, problem with that, with wasting our time trying to enforce silly laws like zoning-type things that happen. But I even see it uh, carry one step further. We have people in the community that actually use those ordinances and laws and drum them up when they have uh, rifts with their neighbors, uh, something that can be fine, uh, uh, front yard is okay, and then all of a sudden the neighbors have a tiff, and uh, they like to call on each other and really kind of ramp it into each other on uh, silly, useless, little pointless things, again, turning uh, their neighbors into criminals. Uh, it's pretty pathetic to deal with, but it kind of goes along with that disconnect that we have living inside local communities that uh, we don't, uh, they don't know their neighbors anymore, and of course nobody ever goes and talks to anybody to get these things worked out. Instead, wasting taxpayers' dollars by having the police departments go in and, and uh, mediate these things. So it gets pretty upsetting at times. Um, great podcast. Uh, love it, and I'll be listening more. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Well, well, thanks for the call. I, I really appreciate it when I say things that challenge law enforcement and then I hear from members of law enforcement that say, yeah, you're right, you're on spot. Because one, it tells me I am not mischaracterizing things. That the, 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 the law enforcement officers that get upset with me when I occasionally challenge some things are probably the ones doing them 
or they live in some freaking Mayberry type environment where they don't see it. Like they grew up there, they got on the force there, and they're in a place where people just don't pull this shit. They don't deal with inner city crime. They don't deal with a lot of cases of abuse. They're not being trained by the federal authorities yet to to act like federal thugs instead of local law enforcement. So they they, they either are guilty or they just haven't exposed themselves to it. But you know they see it. Now, the, when people do see it, they bring it back. That's not really analogous here, but I think in some other instances on some other things I've said, and I've heard very positively back from law enforcement officers. In fact, um, I got one for you here before I go on about this. So I, I got an email uh, not long ago about the law enforcement service discount for MSB. And the guy emailed me and said, I was a federal marshal. I'm now retired. And I want to know if I qualify. No, you're not exactly thrilled with some of the things the federal government are doing. Uh, but, you know, I, I was, I tried to do the right thing at the right time and all. I mean, yeah, of course you do. Here you go, man. So I sent him a discount and he sent me a DVD called Please Remove Your Shoes that he participated in about how the TSA basically sucks and how they're violating our rights. And, and there was a perfect example of someone that we would look and see as kind of the problem actually trying to be the solution. So I love when I hear from law enforcement officers. And if you're a law enforcement officer and you're doing the right thing and you want to tell people like how to solve their own problems or tell people, you know, how to keep themselves out of trouble or anything, anything you want to do to help this audience, um, call in. I'll put you on the air. I mean, you know, there's a reason I give you guys a discount. I appreciate the hell out of you. Um, on the concept that one neighbor would use another neighbor's uh, minor code violations in an argument, what is this country turning into? The person that does that needs the rest of the neighborhood to like show up like an organized, calm, sane mob at their house and not threaten them or pull them out in the streets and you know give them a giant wedgie hanging from a tree or whatever. I know we'd all like to do that, but that's not how civilized people act. And simply say, hey, Tom, um, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to your neighbor? Don't you think we can all solve our own problems, Tom? We're all here for an intervention. You know, like when somebody's like using drugs and harming themselves. Yeah, you're harming yourself and you're harming our whole neighborhood, dragging law enforcement in into something they don't need to be in. Tom, we don't like that. Tom, let's see if we can all fix this together. Communities band together. Next thing, for the law enforcement officer that's that's used this way, I want you to understand that's what's happening. Tommy is mad at Stevie, like two little children, and rather than solving their own freaking problems, Tommy's going, Daddy, Tommy touched me. That's what's going on in these environments. This is how my father would have handled that between myself and my sister. If my sister went, he he came in my room, and, 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 and he took one of my things, and he looked at it, or whatever, he would have said, Really? Didn't I tell you to clean your room today? Why don't I go check your room out and see if it's clean before I worry about whether or not your brother looked in your room? Oh, well, then never mind. Okay, so I've seen this not so much with 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 uh, uniformed officers. I've seen the code enforcement people, some decent code enforcement guys, like you know the guy that works for buildings or yards or whatever in your in the city, do this. Guy gets upset that his neighbor, uh, I don't know put the trash out wrong or something, but there's nothing he can really do about that, and he goes down there and mouths the guy off, or doesn't, one way or the other, but basically, like, he gets in a wad. And then he realizes, hey, look, that, 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 that structure he has in the backyard, he built, like, an overhang, and it's really, I think that's going into the easement. And his fence 
is like not in really good repair. So he calls up code enforcement and says, yeah, I want to report this. And of course, they don't just like show up. They ask who's reporting it. Now, they won't tell the guy with the problem who's reporting it, even though he already knows, but they know who's called in because the code enforcement guy wants to come by and verify the complaint, right? Because in a lot of situations, these cops or code enforcement guys would prefer to like, okay, that's not really a big deal. That's not really the spirit. Technically, yeah, but it's not causing it. But, but once, once there's some asshole bitching about it, They have to protect their ass and they have to enforce the law because they're afraid that their call is going to go to their superior and say, so-and-so was assigned this case and didn't do anything. So they feel like they have to do something. But what I've seen some code enforcement guys do is go to the guy's house and say, so I understand you have a complaint about your neighbor. Now, he's going to have to go down there and enforce the law. He knows he's going to, but he doesn't want to be used like this again. So what I've seen them do, I've seen the good and the bad and the ugly. The good do this. Hey, I, I was noticing something about your yard, and they end up finding something to write up the guy that reported the violation for when they know it's a bullshit violation. That's the good. I, I like that. Uh, let's call that let's call that the pseudo bad, the somewhat bad, not the ugly, but the, still the bad because now you're writing two people up. I think the good is when the guy goes in and goes, "What's really the problem here? Do, do you really need this done?" You know, can, can we not just, you know, I'll go talk to him, but don't you think you can just like, you know, let this go? And if the guy doesn't let it go, then you go to the bad, right? Then you go to the, okay, we're going to enforce it, but maybe there's something wrong here. And then there's the ugly. This is the guy with the power trip. And this is why you people that do this to your neighbors need to think twice before you do it. I saw one instance, and unfortunately the guy that made the phone call was a friend of mine, and I'm like, well, you learned your ass, didn't you? And it was exactly over that, except he, it wasn't the neighbor had the overhang, the neighbor had a fence. The fence was leaning out, and the guy apparently probably didn't have the money to fix the fence yet, and my friend thought that that hurt the value of his neighborhood. So instead of going down there and saying, hey, friend, why don't, um, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't we get the neighbor together and see if we can fix your fence? No, he called code enforcement. So code enforcement came out and went down there and told the, and wrote the guy's citation and said, you have to fix your fence. Then he went to my friend's house and said, you know what? You've got an overhang that you built off of the side of your house that's going into the easement, it needs to be removed. Now, he had spent a lot of money to put it up there. They enjoyed using it, created shade on that side of the house in the afternoon when the sun was in the west. They cooked out there. It wasn't bothering anybody. Nobody cared about it. But the code enforcement official was making a point. Now, you'd say, you'd say that's, that's okay is what you said. In a way, yeah, it's okay. But then he went up and down the road and he wrote up every violation in the neighborhood he could find. And about 20 different people in a neighborhood of about 50 houses ended up with some type of a citation. So we get his quota for the month or the quarter or whatever. So when you have a problem with your neighbor, before you go, Daddy, fix it, Stephen looked at me, how about you try to solve your problem? And as I said in our earlier episode, how about you help your neighbors that maybe have that bad fence or have that bad yard? Maybe they're down on their luck. Maybe they need some help. Maybe they're not just a jerk. You know, and, and maybe you can be decent about the way you ask. Cause I promise you, if you go, hey, Tim, why don't you fix that? Tim's gonna give you the middle finger and tell you to shove it up your ass. Right? How about, hey, Tim, what, how, how you doing, man? What's, what's going on in your life? Don't even bring it up until you find out what's going on in the guy's life. You might find his, out his wife has cancer. She's at the hospital and his kids are with his, with his parents because he can't look after them. And he's spending his time between picking his kids up, going to see his wife and working his ass off. And you're worried about the fact that his freaking fence is leaning. That might be what you find out. And maybe at that point, it won't even be, let's fix your fence. Maybe it's our thoughts and prayers are with you and your family. Let me know if there's anything we can do to help. 
And then maybe when they get through that, maybe he would welcome you helping him fix his fence. But what you people, I wouldn't say you people, but people that are out there using law enforcement this way, law enforcement know you're being used and push back as and where you can, please. Let's take one more. Hey, Jack. I don't know if you uh, saw on Ruger's site, but they just released a new 1022 called the Takedown. Basically, it quickly splits apart. It looks to be like a great option for just being able to have a, you know, go-to trap rifle, you know, have it stored in your trunk, fit it in a backpack, anything that you might actually need to carry. Um, I know you've talked about how between 22 and 12 gauge, you can pretty much hunt almost every animal on the North American continent. Um, but just thought you might want to check it out, and for all your listeners, we're looking for a uh, 22 rifle that would make a good bug-out rifle. Uh, look at the new takedown. Splits right apart. Yeah, I decided to put that call on because I got a lot of emails about the new 1022 takedown. It, it came out coincidentally like right after I did an episode on takedown guns, and I, I really wish it would have come out like right before that because I would have loved to include that. Um, I gave really high praise to the Marlin Papoose in my episode on takedown guns, and it is a great gun, very affordable, uh, very reliable, works and functions very well. But one of the things I said about it that makes it not quite ideal is the lack of a forearm. Uh, because that just does some things that hampers form and things like that. The, the Ruger takedown has a form. It, when it's put together, it looks like a synthetic stock 1022. You almost can't tell that there's much of a difference to it. And in all other respects, it's a 1022. It'll, you know, you know, use, uh, additional capacity magazines, uh, any other Ruger 1022 accessories, the accuracy, the reliability, the dependability of the 1022 platform. Awesome. I think it's one of the greatest inventions. Uh, and, and, you know, it's like, I get, I get so tired of like, we made a new round and it's 30 caliber, but the shoulder's different and it gets one tenth of one percent more velocity out of this. I don't care. Get a 3006 or a 308 and leave me alone. I mean, that's, I'm starting to feel like these manufacturers are just coming up with shit so they can get on the front page of a magazine so they can sell more shit. Well, this is actually innovative. This is actually filling a need. Uh, they're not real expensive. They're not real cheap. Jeff over at Sawtack got a hold of two of them, sent me an email, and I'm sorry, Jeff, I never responded to you, but um, uh, he got two of them, and he had offered to let me buy one. I could have it shipped to an FFL, and I, I decided I didn't need it just yet. There's other things that I want to invest in in the short term, and I have takedown requirements taken care of, but if I didn't already own an AR-7 and a Papoose, I probably would have bought it the day it came out. I also figure the price on them will come down a little bit over time, uh, but I think it's a great gun, and I think it would be a great... See, here's what I like about the, the, the new Ruger. Um, I would not take my Papoose or my uh, AR-7 squirrel hunting Unless I was like backpacking or something or something like so, if I just decided like today I'm gonna like go spring squirrel hunting up in uh, the the national forest here and take my license and 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 put some clothes on and drive out there and take a walk and look for squirrels. So I was gonna be in that type of scenario, normal hunting scenario. I would not take those guns. I would take my you know my my Ruger 1022 or my Marlin Model 25, one or the other. 
Um, I would take the, the takedown Ruger as, as just a, so it would be dual purpose. It would be an everyday hunting target shooting rifle that happens to take down versus something where you're giving something up. It looks awesome. So, uh, can't fully endorse it because I haven't held one, shot one, used one yet. It is in my future plans. I just have some other things I'm working on right now that come before yet another gun because I'm well armed. Uh, for those of you thinking about getting your first 22 and you're going to go with a semi-auto, um, or you're going to add a 22 anytime soon, please look at this before you make your decision, at least. That's what I'll say. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. We'll take one more, and we're, we're done for the day. Hi, Jack. This is Sherry from Central Indiana. I'm Serenity Gulch on the forum. I was wondering what suggestions you might have for EDC items that won't get the TSA's panties in a twist. Um, I have to travel with my job, and typically my trips are very short. I fly out in the morning, spend the day at a site, and then fly back in the evening. So I'm not checking any baggage, and so I can't get items through security that way. Um, my main concern is for um, security items because I am a woman traveling alone, and some of these clients that I'm going to visit aren't in the greatest of neighborhoods. So any suggestions you could give me for things, like, I don't know if I can get pepper spray through, items like that. Um, I'd appreciate any advice you could have, and um, thanks for everything. Bye. Well, let me say I don't think you're supposed to carry pepper spray onto an airplane. I really don't. I think it's in the list of no-nos. I'll tell you that it, I did it once. I didn't intend to. It was like I'd put, taken it off my key ring and threw it into a bag, and instead of ending up in my checked baggage, it ended up in my normal baggage, and I walked right through it. I don't know if they, they saw it, and I'm wrong, and you're allowed. I don't think you are. Um, but I went through once, and they didn't find it. And luckily, because I probably would have ended up strip-searched or some damn thing and had my uh, my genitals felt up or something like that. And uh, uh, so that didn't happen. So I would advise that. I would, you know, maybe you can check uh, with the list. But if anybody knows to the contrary, I don't think that's permitted. I think if you're not allowed to bring a lot of different things that you're not allowed to bring on a plane, that pepper spray would definitely be on the list. Um, just doesn't seem like something they would allow. I haven't even checked into it because I just think the answer is no. What can we do, though? Well, one thing we can do that we learned from Frank Sharp Jr. that I think is one of the most ideal things that you can do to have a means of defense both on a plane and when you arrive on the other end, especially when you're not checking baggage, get yourself a chain, something about maybe a foot long, and a padlock. It doesn't have to be huge. In fact, it's probably better that it not be huge. But what you have there is a very good flailing weapon, something you could beat the living crap out of somebody with. When they ask you what this is for, say I'm in airports all the time, I travel all the time, and often I end up sitting at a chair asleep. You guys told me to secure my bag, so I take this lock and this chain, and I lock it to the chair that I'm sitting in so that if I happen to fall asleep, nobody's able to steal my baggage or put something into it without my knowledge. <laughs> I think Frank is a freaking genius for saying that. Uh, I really do. I'm like, that is the that is the best answer I've ever heard. It really is. And it's a legitimate answer. And as an airport traveler, I just think it makes sense. Honestly, I think that like if you travel a lot and you might end up you know snoozing out in an airport chair, you probably should do that. So there's there's one thing we can do. I don't know how you feel about walking with a cane, but according to the American with Dis Americans with Disabilities Act. You cannot have your cane removed from you when you get on an airplane. So if you get a good walking cane, and cold steel makes some pretty significant impact-style walking canes, 
You can take that and you have your cane. And if they ask you why, what Frank says we're supposed to do is say, are you discriminating against me for my injury? Uh, which will probably end the conversation. So those are two things that you could take with you and have on your person. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that if you travel often and you're doing these one day out and back, there's a good possibility that you're traveling to one or two or three cities often, or maybe just maybe it's just one. Maybe you go and you do something in one place and come back. If you're always going to a set group, then one thing we could do is, is it possible, and I'm not saying it is, but is it possible for you to find a location to securely store some items that you can pick up once you get there? Like a public locker somewhere uh, or something like that. That you could have, a, a, you know, maybe, uh, for instance, it, it might be the expense of a gym membership and in a location and just having a locker in a gym. Some gyms allow that. And there are certain things you can and cannot store there, but I wouldn't see why you couldn't store pepper spray there. Now, remember with pepper spray, there are some stupid local regulations. Apparently, you need some kind of FOID card or some kind of registration card or some crap like that to carry pepper spray in freaking Massachusetts. So make sure you know the local laws of where you're going. But the two easy ones to get on a plane with and have as a means of defense is a lock and a chain and a walking stick. And those at least you've got something It's better than nothing. Um, I would also say that I think they allow you to carry, what is it, like three ounces or two ounce uh, liquids on a plane. Um, you might want to find yourself a hairspray <laughs> that, that, that fits that requirement that has pretty good projection. Uh, if you've ever gotten hairspray in your eyes, it sucks. It's not mace. But it's something. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm reaching at straws here. But this is a great one. If anybody has any other great ideas for somebody in this scenario. Now, remember, she doesn't stay in a hotel, right? And she doesn't check baggage. And checking baggage would add a lot of travel time for somebody in this situation just to carry some extra stuff. Um, what else could this person do? I've given her my answers. I would love to hear from the rest of the community. And if anybody else is in this situation, what have you done or what are your thoughts and your concerns about doing this? And if anybody knows that I'm wrong, if I didn't accidentally go through the TSA checkpoint with uh, pepper spray one time due to incompetence, if it's actually allowed, let me know. But I really don't think it is. With that, hopefully this has been a great show for a Friday. Uh, we will be back again on Monday, again with Joe Nobody, uh, with a great show on preparing and securing your locations. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.